This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. We're ready to go. Grant's ready. So um, this is Grant Klein. He is at Boomworks. Uh, and he's been do- they've been doing a lot of work on voice interfaces. And he's going to tell us lots of things about that. Um, and apparently get us to do some activities as well. Thanks. There you go. All right. I know it's Friday morning. Hang in there. So, yeah, as Donna said, my name's Grant Klein. I'm here to talk to you about words and computers that use them. Uh, I've used a lot of computers over the years, I think starting with this one, the Commodore VIC-20, sometime in the early 80s, 3.5K of RAM. You had to uh, load and save programs onto a cassette tape. Look it up if you don't know what those are. Uh, They were obviously the computer to have for any Trekkie fan, as can be seen. Uh, Many computers followed that, uh, some named after fruits, some not. Um, But my interest in these things and fascination of these devices has continued. So 10 or 12 years later, around 1998, uh, I ended up here in Sydney and started working at a digital agency uh, making websites. They were really small and cute back then. By 2004, I started a company called Boomworks, uh, which is a user-centred design studio. Uh, No, people didn't really know what a wireframe was back then, uh, and it took a little while before they did. But uh, we stuck at it uh, for over 13 years uh, because we felt like we really needed to. Uh, We use a lot of devices to access entertainment, uh, communication service functions, research, make transactions... Uh, But the thing they all have in common is us, right, the user. So today we use whichever device is appropriate to the task at hand or just happens to be closest. But we expect that uh, interaction we have through and with these devices to be seamless, intuitive, don't require us to think too hard about it, and most importantly, not get in the way of getting our stuff done. So I've always believed we need to work to meet the balance between great design and technical innovation as much as understanding user wants and business needs, all within that solution. So for the past 12 years, uh, sorry, months, uh, we've been developing our own customised conversational platform in order to meet the challenges of this new interaction type. We built our own conversational platform because it made sense to us having a centralised conversational engine meant you could deploy experiences across, across a range of different environments from web, messenger, mobile, SMS, Slack, or into the world of cars, VR, and uh, any other kind of internet-connected device. So we wanted to make conversational experiences not only really flexible, but highly accessible. But. In the beginning, it could be a little frustrating. We didn't always get the results we were aiming for. But we were doing great, apparently. So we were trying to understand how to design for a new interface that not only seemed to be at the other end of the graphical spectrum that we were used to, but also dealing with a technology that was unpredictable. We quickly realised one of the biggest challenges in the beginning was 
when you strip away all the images and a bunch of all the what we'd now consider traditional interface controls, how do we design for what's left? The written and spoken word. So we had years, we had years of user-centered design experience uh, to draw on. So how could we apply that to these new conversational interfaces? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about this morning, which means I'm going to use this one word quite a lot. So when we hear the word conversational interfaces, we tend to first think of chatbots, right? And yes, there's been a lot of talk about them lately, and uh, probably rightly so. But are chatbots and the concepts of conversational interfaces really that new? Well, look, in a sense, not really, right? Uh, there's a bit of debate about it, but the first chatterbot that was ever coded uh, was called Eliza. It was invented in 1966 by Joseph Weizenbaum at MIT. Uh, using a series of scripts and pattern matching, it was also regarded as one of the first programs that could possibly pass the Turing test. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Blade Runner, the Turing test developed by Alan Turing in 1950 is a test of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behaviour indistinguishable from that of a human. That's all good and well, but uh, many of us may be more familiar with a simpler example. <laughs> Clip it, or Mr. Clippy, as he was also known, was the helpful uh, assistant in Microsoft Office 97. Kind of provided a semi-helpful, one-sided conversation, especially if you were trying to write a letter. Because I guess we still did that back in 1997. More recently, though, things start to move a bit faster, right? In 2010, Siri appears on our iPhones and starts to provide a single answer to a single question. In 2012, Google Now allows us to do voice input for search. And in 2015, Alexa goes a step further uh, and starts inhabiting all these Amazon Echo devices. 2016, Microsoft has another crack at it with Cortana and makes the jump from the popular Halo game series <laughs> into Microsoft products. And then Facebook announces chatbots in their messenger platform in April 2016. And by September 2016, there's apparently over 30,000 bots inhabiting that platform. And a year after that launch in April, uh, in April 2017 this year, it was estimated there were over 100,000 bots. We might hear more about that in the next talk if you stick around. So Google Home, Home became available uh, just last month here in Australia and the Apple HomePod is set for release in December. So in a way not that new, but importantly business, businesses need to be present and available to engage with customers when, where and how they want to access uh, information through this increasing range of devices, right? The landscape's changing super fast, and that's significant for how we create conversational experiences for customers. So while we're somewhat used to technology steadily involving this rapid change in the conversational interface landscape, is being driven by advancements in these three uh, separate but related areas. Firstly, artificial intelligence, the subject of most scary robot movies. Right, the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks 
normally requiring humans, such as visual perception, speech recognition, uh, decision-making and translation of uh, languages, or simply the capability of a machine to imitate intelligent human behaviour. The second one is machine learning, which is a type of artificial intelligence that allows software applications to become more uh, accurate in predicting outcomes without being explicitly programmed for that. And the third one is the science of natural language processing and natural language understanding, which is concerned with the interactions between computers and human or natural languages, and in particular, concerned with programming computers to effectively process large amounts of specific natural language. So it's the advancements in these three key technologies that have given rise to the usefulness of conversational interfaces. Okay, so far? I know, it's heavy stuff for a Friday morning, but why are we here? Surely with the advancement of all this great technology and all this computing power, all the heavy lifting's been done for us, right? Why do we need conversational design? I think it can be explained pretty simply like this. Over-reduction of friction can cause an increase in ambiguity. Yes, that's probably not what that means. But in design terms, we often say, right, friction is the time between what I want and how I get that via technology. So I've, I've said before that Americans might call this pizza time. As they seem to measure the advancement of technology through the ease in which they can order a pizza. Right? Order me a pizza. So what we want to do is create the shortest distance between wanting and getting. However, in reducing friction via conversation, we can introduce ambiguity. So order pizza. That's great, but what kind? What size? You know, where from? Do you want to pick up or delivery? How are you going to pay for it? So in other words, what do you mean? By reducing the perceived friction caused by all these apparently unnecessary words, we've lost important parts of the conversation. So to demonstrate what I mean, it's time for a bit of audience participation. All right, I warned some people that there was going to be audience participation and they unwisely chose to not sit at the back of the room. However, so we're all familiar with these words, uh, so I'm just going to get you to read them out. All right. Um, here's someone who looked like they had a big night last night. <laughs> Here we go, sir. What I'd like you to do... Oh, he's got his glasses as well. See, I know how to pick them. Just, just read those words out like that. See those words up there? Read the last line. Read the last line. Just oh, my God. All right, maybe not a Logie Award winner, but uh, we'll keep going. Here we go. I saw Donna sitting down the front. We'll get her to do that one. This? Just read, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, sorry. Oh, my God. There you go. Here we go. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get there in the end, won't we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, look, uh, I know this, this one... Uh, Coxie, he really wants to do this one. You are really scared. Oh. Sorry, I got that wrong. Yeah. It was a late night. Let me try that again. Oh, oh my God. All right. We're getting there. 
Maybe some future NIDA graduates, you never know. All right, let's try some people over here. How about this one? So you're just going to say those three words, read that, do it like that. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> All right, now we're getting somewhere. All right, lucky last. Who else have we got here? I can't run away too far. How about that one? Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> All right, not too bad, not too bad. All right, big round of applause for our audience participants. All right, good times. Uh, what does that tell us? What's the point here? So while we've all been talking uh, with one another for some years, maybe not us personally, but um, we've only just started talking with machines in any real sense. So we need strategies for how to convey what we mean, what our intention is, when we're trying to communicate when many of those signals we might uh, use are not present in just text or voice, right? Uh, we simply uh, need to be able to communicate those things when a computer maybe can't understand what we're talking about. So just as it takes time to teach a baby to talk and converse, we need a strategy for how you construct an interaction with this new form of interface. No matter how you design a conversation, people's experience will be influenced not just by the conversational experience, but by all the expectations they have about it as well. So it's our job to make those expectations help shape the experience in a way that's beneficial for the user, not the other way around. So for anyone setting out on the conversational design journey, I wanted to describe what we've found at Boomworks to be the four critical parts of the design process to create a great conversational experience and how UX design principles we all know and love can be applied to achieve that. In the interest of brevity this morning, I'm going to describe it like this. Conversational design is like the first time you meet the parents of your partner. Stay with me. Only meet them if you have to. Second, what are you even meeting them for? Third, use words they understand. And fourth, for the love of God, know how to get out of there. All right, let's dive in. Only meet them if you have to. It seems pretty self-explanatory, right? What's the purpose, the why question? We've all heard the expression, there's an app for that. But really, do, do we need an app for that? Why? It's not enough to just decide we need a bot. Setting up a bot requires a lot of teaching, and deciding what to teach requires a lot of focus. A bot can eventually evolve to handle any type of customer interaction you can think of, but not from the word go. So we need to address the why question as a matter of priority. And to help answer that, we can turn to recipient design. So recipient design is a term typically used in the field of conversation analysis, uh, which is an approach to the study of human and social interactions uh, as part of everyday life. Uh, it looks at the various mechanics and behaviours of how conversations are structured and the impact on the participants. All right, so my version of a simple UX translation of that is just simply human-centred design, right? Put human needs first and adapt. 
So our first question is, do we really need a bot for this? Are the needs of the user such that this is an appropriate interface for them? Assuming it is, or this would be a much shorter presentation this morning, this helps define the things we need to be really clear on. What job does the bot need to get done? Once we narrow down the job, it'll be easier for us to prioritise the bot knowledge and the content uh, requirements of that piece. Start by deciding which problems a bot could be best used to solve and which of these problems represent the biggest opportunities and most important needs of the user. Would it be best to handle bookings, answer FAQs about your business, provide the status as a query, or help users manage their account? Creating and ranking job stories is a particularly effective way to define a bot's purpose. So having a priority of jobs the bot could do brings us to the next step of how it might do these jobs and, in a sense, a second sanity check about whether it even should. Occam's razor is a principle that can be oversimplified to say the simplest solution is almost always the best. Or to simplify that even more in that spirit, simple is better. So our familiar UX translation of this, minimise cognitive load. We're so used to speaking naturally uh, that robotic and abbreviated language ironically often results in more cognitive load than just speaking the way we would with friends. For instance, from years of usability testing, we've seen that when users have a hard time navigating a graphical user interface, they often get frustrated and blame themselves. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see the apply now button at the bottom of the form, right? Oh, I see it now, yeah, now that you've pointed it out, yeah, it's really obvious, yeah. Sorry, it's my fault. That was. On the other hand, when users encounter problems in a conversational interface, they immediately blame the system instead. Users are confident in their abilities to articulate themselves and therefore expect the system to adapt to them, not the other way around. So in determining if we need a conversational interface, we've finalised the list of jobs our bot will perform. We've ensured that they are relevant to the users and can be achieved easily in this way. So only meet them if you have to. All right, the next part of the design phase, what are you even there for? All right, so you've ended up in front of these people uh, standing there. They've already got an opinion about you and your motives. But how do you align that or reframe it? So we've established a purpose, but now we need to communicate it. And this is the role of onboarding. All right, so you thought you got off easy last time, but we've got a little bit more of uh, audience participation to come. So, our friend here works at an airline, but we can't show you his face. But we are going to ask him some questions. Uh, now, a lot of people often uh, fly up to Sydney from other places who flew up and... Uh, had to engage with an airline to get to UX Australia. Oh, suddenly nobody, because they don't want to answer questions. So if we were to ask a question of someone from the airline, I might ask uh, something like, how do you uh, get away with calling a small bag of nuts and a tiny little can of drink a meal? That just might be me. Who else? Uh, so who flew up here? Who was... Uh, there we go. Oh, he's, in, he's just gone, oh, no, I shouldn't have put my hand up. What, what question would you ask an airline? 
about whatever your airline experience, what would you like to ask a question to the airline about? Is this flight on time? Yep, okay. What's this flight on time? Who else? Who else might like to ask a question of their airline? They might have a lot of frequent flyer points and want to know why they haven't got an upgrade forever. I went nuts shopping last night. Will I have enough? Will I be able to take my suitcase on board? Oh, there you go. Can you take your suitcase on board? Another couple of quick questions. Who else has been on the airlines? Oh, they're way over there. All right, look at this. Health and fitness and presenting at the same time. Quick question for the airline. Why do you not allow mobile phones? Oh, I don't allow mobile phones. Probably because of the peace and quiet. Uh, one other last question. Quick, quick. Oh, he's over here. Another quick question for our person from the airline. How long have those staff been working? Have they had a break? Oh, interesting question. I just want to know if I can be upgraded to anything better than business class. Where do you get that from? All right. So good questions. Another quick round of applause for our participants there. Checks in the mail. So here's the thing, though. This person from the airline can't answer those questions. The point is, just as we have a variety of signals to identify if we're talking to the right person based on our intended purpose, we need a way of gathering similar information from a bot in order for expectations of our pending conversation to be met, right? So, a person knows not to ask a hot dog vendor about veterinary advice, hopefully. But these lines aren't as apparent when it comes to bots. Since bots have a largely invisible interface, users can be forgiven for not knowing the limits of the bot's expertise. It's easy to imagine a bot to be connected to every necessary database and system all over the place to be able to answer any question, but presently that's really not the case. So as a result, it's important that a bot introduce itself so that users understand the sorts of questions they can expect to have answered. Just as it's vital to have a clear purpose in mind for the bot, it's equally important that this purpose is clearly communicated. This could be as simple as a greeting message which explains what the bot's going to do or a more comprehensive onboarding if the situation calls for it. So this is an example uh, where the bot has been put in front of an existing support request form. Uh, so attempting to solve the majority of typical problems a CMS user might run into before resorting to submitting the support request. In this case, the bot introduces itself uh, and most importantly establishes this is a virtual assistant. No humans will be involved in this conversation, right? Um, the next thing, it's establishing what it can do. It's answering questions about Squiz Matrix, the CMS system. So it's setting expectations. It's setting the edges about where its knowledge is. And also, just through those first couple of sentences in the way that they're written, it's established a little bit of a sense of personality, right? Friendly, but factual. It's the government, after all. Doesn't need to be your best friend. Um, the other thing it's been able to do is identify any other specific features. So in this case, because the user may have been expecting to see the usual uh, support request form, we're highlighting, hey, look, the support request form's still here. We've just put it down here in this little menu. You can get to it. There's some other cool things there that you can do to like copy a chat transcript if you want to do that too. We could also use those kind of areas to do things like announce new skills or uh, potentially new features when they become available. 
So via the briefest of introduction, it's still possible to establish personality and purpose to help align expectations. So onboarding, that's what you're there for. So use words they understand. If a taxi driver were to ask me what I do for a living, they probably wouldn't know what it means if I say I run a user-centered design business currently focusing on advanced enterprise-scale conversational interfaces. So I might just say I design websites. Not because I'm trying to be condescending, but because in this setting, this is an appropriate amount of information to resolve the conversational transaction that I want to have. So based on the audience I'm speaking to, I adjust the language uh, and style of how I converse. I may adjust the volume, the tone, uh, resort to elaborate arm gestures, uh, almost imperceptible nods and grunts, uh, and even simplified language. I choose these based on who I'm communicating with and where and when I'm doing it. So when considering the nature of how a conversation might be conducted with a bot via a phone or connected device of some kind, I need to consider my audience and their situation as the best input method is situational. Sometimes using text and related interface controls will be best and certain controls will be more appropriate than text. And beyond that, it might be appropriate to use voice in certain situations. So how many people love sitting on the bus and listening to other people's phone calls? Just me? Okay. Um, anyway... You all know the scene, right? You're on the bus coming to work with 50 of your closest friends and everybody's sitting here doing this. Scrolling through, getting their morning feed of social, right? But imagine if everyone on the bus was talking to Facebook to scroll through their feed and comment on activities. Scroll, like, scroll, comment, great share, that's awesome. I love cat videos. Smiley face, heart, scroll, accept request, block, double smiley face. I agree, nobody needs to hear that, especially on a Friday morning, so I apologise for that. But it's not awesome, right? So our UX translation of this is a familiar one. Context really matters, right? But we've got to remember these days it can also change really quickly. For example... I might want to talk to the chatbot connected to my doctor's office. Can I make an appointment for tomorrow afternoon? The doctor can see you on Saturday at 2pm. Is that okay? Yes, I should have woken up by then uh, after tonight's drinks, so um, that's great. I'll book that in for you. Thanks. So what we're looking is at... Is this appointment related to your rush from last week? <laughs> so we're starting to see why context is important in the design. <laughs> Given those couple of examples, we have to consider... It's, actually, it's fine. It's cleared up. Um, we have to consider the differing ways content can be presented and consumed, right? Text or voice. So here's another example uh, of an early prototype we did for the Department of Education where we were looking at providing support around enrolment information. Hi, I'm Eva, the virtual assistant for the Department of Education. So I might ask a simple question about enrolment. 
how do I enrol my child in kindy? And Eva provides the following response. Now that's probably bordering on the maximum you want to see in this kind of written response, given the context, right? It's, you're researching, you're gathering primary information, so it's a bit long, but it, but it feels appropriate still. But let's try that again. How do I enrol my child in kindy? To enrol your child, you need to provide documentation showing proof of age, such as a birth certificate or passport. The enrollment of eligible children in the kindergarten year is to commence within the first week of the school year. Suddenly that doesn't feel quite as appropriate, does it? And here's the really scary reason why. A report recently quoted the attention span of humans as eight seconds, being less than goldfish with an attention span of nine seconds. (laughs) So with so many devices and systems competing for our attention, we need to make sure conversational interactions are snack and go ready. Fortunately, there's now a variety of interaction elements uh, that have found their way into the chatbot conversational design palette. So if we do have screen support, we can use things like text, buttons, uh, images, both animated, static, emoji-tastic, iconorific, video components, mini-apps, a whole lot of things. And just like any other compact interface, uh, to enable a user to get their job done, we can choose the most appropriate interaction type for the context, allowing for both voice and text. Uh, A simple choice between a few defined options can be well served by buttons or the vocal equivalent. But it's beyond these, uh, I guess, typical interaction elements where things are starting to get really interesting in this space. We're also experimenting with far more powerful components and features that allow the interaction through multilingual capability Uh, doing language detection for both voice and text and real-time translations, increasing accessibility and providing services to a greater range of people. Uh, Vision processing and image uh, recognition, so we could do things like uh, facial scans for authentication, uh, scanning objects for data entry and inquiry, uh, being able to, say, photographs and genes and say, where can I buy these, and continue a conversation in that context visually supported. Uh, The most interesting one for me is uh, probably episodic memory, which means not only having cross-device conversations, we can start a conversation on one interface and continue it on another, but retain understanding of context and intent. What I mean by that is, say, in that enrolment example we were just looking at, you might ask uh, how many students are at Leichhardt Public School on the web version of the chatbot. But then later in the car... Uh, open the mobile chatbot and ask, and how many teachers are there? Using episodic memory retains the subject matter of the school being discussed and answers based on that. So you don't need to say how many teachers are at Leichhardt Public School. It remembers that from the previous conversation on the other device. So if you use words they understand, empower users with elements and features they readily understand, you enable a user to complete the interaction as easily as possible. Minimising ambiguity in the reduction of friction. Understand their situation may change and allow alternatives for response to accommodate it. So, last one, know how to get out of there. So you've established, uh, you've met, you've established your motives, conversed appropriately. It's time to politely excuse yourself and live to fight another day. Or as we like to say, 
win by failing gracefully. So despite all the AI power, uh, onboarding extensive conversational content design, it's highly likely that at some point the user is going to bump into the edges of your conversational capability and in some place, places just fall right the hell over the edge of it. So we've found that users will either follow the guidance of the onboarding straight away and lock into the context that works with the bot or go to the other extreme and start trying to explain their life story in a multi-tiered question. Equally, as a user becomes more confident uh, with the conversation and maybe enjoying the experience they're having, they often become more playful and want to test the boundaries of the conversation. The problem is, if non-responsive behaviour persists from the bot without clear direction, things can devolve quite quickly. Remember that roses only example from earlier on? No? Not surprised. We use the following strategy to handle what we like to call failing gracefully. We start by rephrasing the question. Just as in human conversation, uh, we sometimes misunderstand what's being said or have just plain tuned out. Uh, so the natural response is for us to ask the other person to repeat the question. So in an instance where our bot has misunderstood something, we typically respond by asking the user to rephrase the question in some kind of way and ask it again. I think you just went through a tunnel. Would you mind repeating that last part? This not only provides a greater opportunity for the bot to answer the question, but also enables its continued learning in the background. So our next step in failing is intelligent handover. Uh, if we detect that a question has failed more than uh, once, we recommend putting systems in place to direct the user to some other possible solutions. So these might include just directing to a much broader source. So saying, I can't help with that, but you could try this area in our support website and direct them out to that way. If we know there is a live chat system available, we can do a handover directly into the live chat system, transferring the conversation from the virtual to the human. So we do still keep our jobs. If, however, our job has ended for the day and we've gone home and this live support system is no longer available, what we can do is collect contact information, email address, phone number, something like that, carry that out through the conversation, submit it directly into the support process for follow-up later on. So we do some intelligent handover in that way. And for some reason, we love to be polite and even playful with our bots and virtual assistants, so you need to have some small talk. Small talk's an important part of the conversation as it can deliver a sense of personality, uh, clarifying the closure of a conversational component, redirecting users back to uh, what you're actually there for. You know, let's not talk about the weather, let's talk about how I can help you with this content management system. Uh, or just to head off those dead ends when the conversation just feels like it's standing there and there's a strange silence. So just as onboarding sets expectations, how you plan to handle excursions into the unknown will retain credibility in the bot and so by extension the business it represents. So know how to get out of there. So when approaching your conversational design, keep these four things in mind. Only meet them if you have to. Have a clear reason for your conversational interaction. In the best spirit of human-centred design, put human needs first and minimise the cognitive load to let them get things done. What are you meeting them for? Design the reason, sorry, define the reason to make sure you can help and utilise onboarding. 
Use words they understand. Provide interaction methods appropriate to the context and the content. And be aware these may change vastly and quickly. And know how to get out of there. Fail gracefully to avoid frustration loops. So we know this technology is going to continue to advance at an amazing rate. In terms of artificial intelligence, expect to see it feeling less artificial and more intelligent. Think of it like this. The internet of 1997 at the widely adopted beginning is how we should think about where conversational interfaces are now in 2017. The advantage we have now, as compared to when that cute Qantas website was designed, is that we have created solid user-centred design principles that are generally now widely accepted. And we can be using those to guide the implementation of this new technology. So equally, understanding our audience has a growing range of devices and interfaces that are going to uh, enable more human-like interactions. We need to consider how to balance the best of the interaction methods available to us at any time. We like to think of it as delivering conversation as a service. It's responsive design for a conversation. So understand your audience is going to move between devices and apps faster than ever before. So having a conversational platform that can respond to that and deliver conversational experiences that are consistent and contextual is what we're looking to do. If we keep these things in mind, we stand a better chance of avoiding this. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Good. Bye. Thank you. That wasn't a very good computer voice, was it? Um, we have time for some questions. Bonus points if you can phrase them as if he's a bot. Um, and if Elena is in here, could you come up and get your t equipment tested? Thank oh, there we go. I thought you were saying I'm Elena, which... I've actually got a question about the voice that's used. It sounds very much like it was always in the 80s, the robot voice. Is that's, there... that's my background. I'm just an 80s robot voice kind of guy. Is that that's the way it's always going to be? No. There's actually a, yeah, there's a whole, whole boatload of uh, technical term, boatload of uh, different voices that are available to use at the moment. Uh, for the demonstration purposes, I have used some uh, fairly simple ones. Uh, but that's absolutely going to be an area that's going to improve over time is you know, the nature of those voices and equally becomes a really important part then of the design process of starting to voice the personality that we were talking about. So I mentioned a little bit about just using a couple of sentences to establish personality. Obviously that permeates in terms of tone of voice throughout the conversational design and where you're going to be vocalising that, the, the sound of it needs to reinforce that as well. So, yeah. Very interesting. Um, I'm over here. <laughs> uh, so I have a question about, I'm assuming you usably tested some of that stuff. I'm curious to know... Uh, if you got the kind of pushback I'm imagining you would get from testing these sorts of things. Uh, like, I don't know if I'm unique, but I, these things fill me with unbridled rage, and I want to know if that's something you see in usability tests. Yeah. Um, yeah, we actually we, we do use a, a lab, so we can kind of lock people in the room, so that rage is very contained. But... Um, no, look, it's, it's an interesting thing. From the very earliest kind of prototypes we created... Um, we, we would kind of seed them into interesting places like the search bar. 
And, and so we would do an onboarding message in the search bar. So people are used to just going to a site that has a uh, bajillion pages and just going, I'm not even going to try and understand this mess of a navigation and architecture. I'm just going to go straight to search because that's what I do, you know, and ask a question. And when you preface that by saying, you know, I'm here from so-and-so and I can, you know, just ask, ask me a question, the people straight away lock into that context of, all right, I'm going to ask a question like, you know, my plumber broke my toilet, what can I do about it? Real question. Uh, with regards to New South Wales fair trading, you know, they, they deal with those kind of questions of people going, what are my rights? How, do, how can I claim against those things? So in that context where they were kind of going, you put it into that mode, they were quite happy then to have this kind of tiered conversation start to come back in this, in this format. So it'll be interesting to see how the CMS one goes, uh, where we actually are flipping it around and you know, there's a big support button that currently opens up a, uh, a, a, a Zendesk support form, right, where you can just fill out some details in a form and it submits it straight away. And now this is opening up. So we've started doing testing on that now and people are comfortable. Uh, but as we saw in that roses only example, uh, if, if you get stuck in that loop and you can't kind of penetrate the understanding, that's when people are just like, and then they lose it, yeah. Wow. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.